Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Warning. This episode of Guilt discusses topics of suicide. Listener discretion is advised. On the last episode of Guilt. Towards, towards the end there, I know that there was a lot of pressure put on him. Um, not so much me, um, but, but, but Jim. Um, and I, the, people that were, the people that were sort of in charge of the process, uh, the management um, at that time, um, not so much the team leaders, but the next sort of next line up, um, they, they did give him a hard time. It doesn't surprise me that he disappeared. Um, Harry disappeared and why and all. Uh, yeah, you know what I'm saying? It, it, yeah. It's not a surprise. It's, it's always something that's been with me. But I, I, I do know um, that he was, I, in my opinion, my impression was that he was, he was being bullied. It's violence that may disturb some people. Today we can officially announce that New Zealand Steel has cracked the code. On the 21st of June 2004, scientist Jim Donnelly vanished from his work at the Gladbrook Steel. From Brevity Studios in New Zealand, I'm Ryan Wolfe, and this is Guilt. Here we go again. The penultimate episode of another season of Guilt. 
this case has taken us on a hell of a journey. But I think we're finally starting to see some pieces falling into place. For Brevity Plus subscribers, this week is a double whammy. The bonus episode, Hearsay, drops in three days. And the final feature-length episode will be released the following week. In that final episode, we're going to hear from some of the people closest to Jim. And you can expect previously unheard evidence which may provide some further clarity as to what happened to Jim. Plus, you'll finally hear my theory on what I believe took place. In the last episode, we learned from former NZ Steel team leader Stephen Morris that in his opinion, he believed Jim was being bullied in the time leading up to his disappearance. I personally believe that this is one of if not the most important new piece of information we've learned. Not only does it provide motive as to why someone may finally be pushed over the edge to possibly disappear or perhaps take their own life, but it also provides a sound explanation as to why Jim was agitated and distracted in these final few weeks. As far as I'm aware, this information is completely new. And I don't believe the police would have been aware of this at the time of their investigation. As Stephen said, it's something he's personally held on to for years. And in this episode, I want to further explore Jim's mental state of mind from the broader context of the entire week. One of the most common beliefs regarding Jim's disappearance and seemingly odd behaviour over his final weekend is that he was suffering from some type of mental breakdown or psychotic episode. And this is understandable, as it provides a simple answer to his actions, that there was no meaning behind them. Jim had simply lost his mind. It's impossible to truly know what was going through Jim's mind in that final week. As we now know, he was under pressure and stress from many different directions. But what we can do is analyse his actions in the context of trying to ascertain whether or not he was a man that was no longer in his right mind, or someone that was sound of mind, but that at that time his actions simply seemed bizarre. Of course, I'm not sufficiently experienced or qualified to answer that question. So I spoke to someone that is. My name's uh, Dr Ian Goodwin, I'm a forensic psychiatrist in Auckland. I've been a forensic psychiatrist for the last 25 years. I meet Ian on what will become a historically tragic day for New Zealand. Within a few hours, intense rain would cause the worst flooding in New Zealand history in the Auckland region. Due to this rain, our planned meeting at a normally quiet calf had to be shifted last minute due to the influx of those normally outside seeking refuge and a hot coffee inside. As such, our interview location isn't ideal, so I apologise for the background noise. The field of forensic psychiatry is an interesting one, and basically encompasses the interface between law and psychiatry. This is made up of many subtopics, like mental state opinion, It would be a forensic psychiatrist like Ian who would examine a case 
and give his opinion as to whether a defendant was able to understand what he or she was doing at the time of the crime. I believe this specific area of expertise is exactly what Jim's case requires. The ability to examine all the facts of the case, and then decide whether this was someone who understood what he was doing. In particular, that includes a person's motivation. I'd like to make a note that I interviewed Ian prior to my interview with Stephen Morris. So Ian was not aware of the alleged bullying at this time. Yeah, generally motivation for things is part of the job, but frequently it's a lot more mundane than that. Just looking at whether people are fit to stand trial or potentially whether they have an insanity defence, those sort of things. Yeah, you see a wide range of different people. You know, I see people who are on remand who may be mentally unwell right through to you know, pre-sentence and looking at their risk factors and what else you know, is required to keep them well or, or the community safe, those sort of things. A few weeks prior to meeting Ian, I sent him through all the material related to Jim's case to give him a chance to get a good understanding. I start by asking him, in his professional opinion, what Jim's actions demonstrate to him. Um, so look, when I looked at the material you know, that you'd sent me and looked at you know, how people were describing Jim ahead of his disappearance, um, my initial response was he was very stressed. So something was, or some things, were significantly stressing him, particularly in the week before he disappeared. Look, he's a bit old to be suffering from a new episode of mental illness at all. So I would say, you know, that's a highly unlikely explanation for how he was behaving. Um, he didn't seem to have any other physical health problems that might have, you know, impacted on his mental health either. So we didn't see anything like that in the materials. I think um, what primarily comes across is that he started behaving in a different manner in the week before. And so the question for me then is, well, why? Um, I don't see any signs that he was suffering from paranoia or a psychotic illness or anything like that. So, you know, as I said earlier, I think it's far more likely that there's some sort of stress that's affecting him. No signs of paranoia or indications of a psychotic illness. Instead, Ian believes that Jim's behaviour would be better explained as someone being under some sort of stress. Well, we are certainly aware that this was the case. I ask Ian how common it is for a person to suddenly flip from normal behaviour one day to abnormal the next. Yeah, that's fairly unusual. I mean, most of us have patterns of behaviour, you know, and we tend to respond to stressors in a fairly characteristic way, you know. It depends on personality and a whole range of other things. But when people are faced with really significant stressors, it can kind of, you know, have a larger impact and can affect things like sleep and appetite, behaviour, concentration, you know, those sort of things. It will come as no surprise to most of you what type of physiological symptoms can arise when under high levels of stress? I'm sure you've all felt it before. Your mind racing, causing insomnia, or a stomach sick with worry, making eating impossible. We know that Jim was not sleeping well from at least Thursday to Monday. I ask Ian whether Jim's evasive actions during this period would indicate someone that was in control of what they were doing. I would say, look, the guy's still working, 
there's no complaints about the quality of his work, you know. Some people noticed that, in fact, you know, he was the happiest he'd ever been, I think, on the Friday, that um, before he disappears. So, you know, to my mind, this guy's not, you know, had a total breakdown or is incapable of doing anything. I think it sounds more like somebody who's stressed about something or some things has to make a decision of some sort and seems to have made that decision potentially, you know, towards the end of that week. Here, Ian is referring to the Friday meeting, where Jim was described by one mill employee as Jim being the most upbeat he'd ever seen him. Let's quickly jump back to that statement. So then I did the Thursday, Friday, and then the Saturday night and the Sunday night. So I finished Monday morning. So on the Friday, we had a safety improvement meeting, and we were looking at some improvements on an automatic bender for the coils at the steel mill. And so we're in this meeting with quite a few others. I can't exactly remember who, but just management. And so I put an idea through for this automatic bander, which puts steel strips around the coils, basically, to stop them unwinding like a big toilet or toilet rolls that are, you know, steel sheets. And he sort of took to my idea quite well, and he was getting quite excited over it. Like he was like, oh, it's pretty awesome. And I've sort of never really seen him so upbeat as such myself. And it was noted, and, you know, subconsciously with myself, like, far out, Jim's in a good mood today, you know. And anyway, so the meeting was over. We walked out together, and it was like, haha, sort of thing, you know, have a good weekend. Ian has picked up on something that has always stuck out to me as potentially very important and often overlooked. In episode 13, I highlighted this meeting and how Jim's behaviour here was at odds with how he would be described around this time. On Friday afternoon at this meeting, Jim is described as upbeat. The very next morning, his evasive behaviour begins. Is it possible that Jim, as Ian described, came to a decision this Friday? Yeah, well, when that happens, I think generally something's happened to the person, you know. There's no evidence that he's manic or hypomanic, you know, high or anything like that, you know. So essentially what you've got is probably somebody who's happy because they've reached some sort of internal decision. That, that would be a guess, but I think it's a reasonable one. Throughout the course of this podcast, I've been contacted hundreds of times by different people with different ideas they'd like to share. And the single most common one of these is the idea that Jim's traits and apparent mannerisms could indicate someone that may be on the autism spectrum. Most of us will be aware of Elon Musk, who has stated that he has been diagnosed with Asperger's. I ask Ian if he thinks this could be possible. Yeah, yeah, I mean, this is mostly taken from descriptions of him from other people, you know, and he seems to be a bit rigid, perfectionistic at times, you know, perhaps not cognitively as flexible as some other people and, like you said, a bit aloof. So it did make me wonder about whether there might be some sort of Aspergery or autistic spectrum kind of trays there. Uh, you know, I wouldn't go as far as making a diagnosis at all based on it, but I just wonder if he did have some of those kind of tr- personality traits. So so we used to think of Asperger's as sort of, some people used to call it high-functioning autism, but it's, it's and now it's actually, the, the whole Asperger's diagnosis is gone, it's replaced by autistic spectrum disorder. And so, you know, if you look at the diagnostic 
manuals that it's now known as autistic spectrum disorder but it's not quite identical to what Asperger's was so people with Asperger's often had some difficulty or had difficulties in relating to others um, you know might be seen as being a bit aloof and um, they don't always have a great deal of emotional what's called reciprocity so they have difficulties say reading how you are and responding appropriately they can be a bit cognitively rigid so you know my way or the highway or it's only you know we can only do this task in one way or you know sometimes you might convince them there are other ways to do it but it won't be immediately kind of obvious to do. Ian is the first to admit that making any kind of diagnosis is impossible but we can certainly look at some of Jim's traits and form a basic opinion. I explain what Stephen Taylor, Jim's best friend, said about Jim's tendency to overanalyze a conversation or comment, and how he will often come to the wrong conclusion as to what was meant. Oh, he was a great thinker. Yeah. He, yeah, it's sometimes too much. He, in relationships and conversations with people, he would often overanalyze. You know, he. If there was one thing you had to say, you needed to chill sometimes. <laughs> Just people said people didn't work to the same level of analytics as he did, um, and therefore he'd, he'd draw up meaning of what somebody's saying that really wasn't there or wasn't intended um, on a regular basis. It's it's like what? <laughs> how did you come to that conclusion? Yeah, so he may, have, may, he may have been lacking sort of the emotional kind of context to what might be said, you know. So when we communicate, we're not just listening to the words, we're also listening to how the words come out and the um, facial expressions that may go with it. And if you're not reading that particularly well, you can easily misinterpret, you know, what a person might say. You might see them as hostile or... Yeah. you know, overtly critical. Potentially, it sounds like a person who overthinks, you know. And and it does actually, it's a good point, I hadn't really thought of this before, it does sort of indicate that he worries about what other people think of him. So that's the analytical side of it, he's going over and over it, and, you know, two and two equals five after a while. I ask Ian whether or not it was possible someone with this type of over-analytical mind could possibly take a comment that had been made towards him and misconstrue it into being something that it wasn't, like perhaps a threat that didn't exist. Yeah, potentially, but I would have expected that to develop over quite a long period of time. You wouldn't expect that to be really sudden, you know. I mean, I I had speculated that he may have witnessed something that, you know, bothered him and he didn't quite know what to do with that. You know, like who to talk to about it, or you know, might have been concerned it might reflect badly on him. But again, there's no real evidence about that. Yeah. If we consider that Jim's disappearance may not have been the result of foul play, then that would leave only two possibilities: Jim disappeared of his own accord, or he somehow took his own life. I ask Ian about his experience in this field and his thoughts in Jim's case. Yeah, yeah, no, I I used to do a lot of work around suicide. I used to work in the emergency department at Auckland Hospital, running the team that assessed all of the people who survived suicide attempts. So I did that for almost a decade. So I've interviewed a lot of people who've attempted suicide, you know, probably in the, you know, thousands. It's a difficult one, but look, he's got no previous mental health history at all. 
you know, he's coped with a professional career and the stresses of that career for a long time, you know. Um, this is sort of something relatively sudden that's occurred, and it's a big step from just being stressed to committing suicide, um, or in this case, potentially planning a quite elaborate suicide where, you know, the body might not be found. You know, that to me, it doesn't really fit to me. I ask Ian, in his experience, what is the primary cause of people attempting suicide? So it's usually a sense of hopelessness or helplessness. So when people reach the decision, they say, well, look, I, I can't change this situation anyway, or it's totally hopeless. And it's usually associated, look, you know, in an adult Jim's age, it's usually going to be associated with a depressive illness, which we know he didn't have, or a psychotic illness, which we know he didn't have. So, you know, there's something stressing him, but for him to sort of leap to suicide from there, just as it's a pretty extreme leap. In the last episode, I had described Jim as seeming in a hopeless situation. Is it possible that Jim had got to a point in his life where he genuinely felt hopeless and he saw suicide as his only option? It's certainly possible. But of course, his body has never been found. And while this doesn't make suicide impossible, it definitely makes it seem less like. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. One thing that has been mentioned before in my research is the possibility that Jim may have suffered from an undiagnosed brain tumour and that this could explain his sudden change in behaviour. I put this to Ian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've seen situations like that where people will, you know, change or, you know, develop psychiatric symptoms and it's thought, you know, and it turns out it's due to some sort of tumour or space-occupying lesion in their brain. But they all present with physical symptoms first, you know? Like, it's highly unusual only to present with psychiatric symptoms. You can sometimes with what are called frontal lobe tumours because uh, the inner brain, but... Usually it's things like impulsivity, you know, they start saying strange things, become disinhibited, you know, um, start doing, you know, things that you normally wouldn't expect. But it's over quite a long period of time, and we're talking weeks to months, and we don't have that in this case, you know. So again, while it's a good thought, I think, you know, the odds of that happening, A, it's rare, 
yeah. and B, his presentation doesn't really fit. I think, you know, whatever has occurred, he's been looking for a solution to that stress. And we don't know what the stress was, and we don't know what the solution was he came up with. And again, you know, some people might say, oh, well, you know, and I have seen this when I've interviewed people when they finally made the decision to kill themselves, they can say there's a feeling of peace that comes over them, that they're there, you know, because they know what they're going to do. But that's not how he's described. He's described as actually being happy and engaging. I want to reiterate, Ian made it clear that without being able to actually meet Jim, a proper diagnosis is not possible. But I think getting the opinion of a person of Dr. Goodwin's considerable experience is helpful nonetheless. And what we've been able to ascertain is that it does not seem likely that Jim had suffered any kind of psychosis or sudden neurological condition, nor does he seem to possess obvious characteristics of someone about to take their own life. Jim does present with some known traits of a person who may be on the autism spectrum. His over-analytical nature and one-dimensional thinking at times being two of those described by friends and work colleagues. And finally, although it can't be ruled out categorically, in Ian's opinion, Jim doesn't appear to present as a person about to take his own life. So this really leaves us with two options. The first being some type of foul play, and the second is a consideration that when I started this podcast, I considered to be fanciful, but now I believe needs to be seriously considered. The possibility that Jim may have decided to leave his old life behind. You'd be correct in believing that today, disappearing without a trace would prove difficult. I'd have thought nigh on impossible. But it turns out that's not totally true. And remember, in 2004, the world was a very different place. The first iPhone wouldn't be released for another three years. Camera phones were in their infancy. Quite simply, your digital footprint in this time was virtually non-existent compared to today. While rare, it does occur that people make the decision to disappear. And New Zealand is no exception to this. In 2002, only two years before Jim's disappearance, a New Zealand man, Bruce Dale, living in Auckland, vanished without a trace. Police found his abandoned car at Port Waikato, and he was presumed drowned. In 2004, he was legally declared dead, and his wife and children would collect an insurance payout of just over a million dollars. Then shockingly, in January of 2008, six years after his disappearance, Bruce would be found alive and well in Christchurch, at the other end of New Zealand. His deception was only finally revealed when he attempted to apply for a passport in his real name having not realised that he had already been declared legally dead. Bruce had staged his drowning by leaving his car abandoned next to the ocean 
and had ridden away on a pushbike he had stashed in the boot of the car. His plan was almost undone by a truck driver who had made a statement to police that he had seen a man fitting Bruce's description riding away from the beach. However, this statement was ignored by police, highlighting how important it is to consider all witness statements, whether they fit the proposed theory or not. Bruce had then taken the name of a dead baby from a gravesite and made his way south, where he started an entire new life under his new name, Michael Peach. He started a business, owned houses, and formed new romantic relationships. When eventually asked about his motives, he stated he was pretty messed up at the time and had begun planning it a few months before his disappearance. He also believed that he could have easily been found if any real effort was made. He said he never changed his appearance, didn't grow a beard, or change his hair. He also said the hardest part was leaving his kids, who he missed terribly. Those that knew Bruce said there was no way he would ever leave his kids. In a more recent case, in 2015, John Beckenridge and his stepson disappeared and haven't been seen since. Beckenridge broke a court order when picking his stepson Mike up from school. They were sighted sleeping in their car in the following days before the car was eventually found a short time after, upside down in the surf on the southland coast of New Zealand. However, there were no signs of their bodies in the car, and it is believed the pair may have evaded capture and escaped overseas. In 2001, a businessman from the Waikato in the central North Island of New Zealand, Harry Gordon, disappeared and was supposed drowned when his dinghy was found floating in a river in New South Wales, Australia. He was declared dead and a large life insurance payment was made. Eventually, after years living under a new identity and with a new fake passport, he was discovered when he happened to walk past his brother on Mount Monganui Beach in the North Island of New Zealand. These are just a few of the cases in recent times and are actually contemporaneous with Jim's disappearance. And they demonstrate that it is indeed possible to start a new life without much difficulty. I spoke to a prominent New Zealand private detective who did not want to be named, but they stated that for someone wanting to do so, disappearing is not difficult. But did say that in their experience, normally this would require the help of another person. One of the reasons it isn't difficult has to do with the law surrounding disappearance and the fact that it's not illegal, and nor should it be. There could be many legitimate reasons why a person might need to disappear and not be found, like spousal abuse, for example. But the problem arises when a person fakes their own death and as such an insurance policy is claimed, thus leading to fraud. Something to note is that a person that is missing will not have a warrant out for their arrest. They will not be appearing in any international police databases like Interpol that will sound the alarm if their ID is used in New Zealand or overseas. In most cases, it will take seven years before a person can be legally declared dead in New Zealand. 
but this is not always the case. Bruce Dale was declared dead after only four years, and this was what ultimately led to his discovery when he applied for a new passport in his real name. And also in Jim's case, the coroner declared him legally dead only three years after his disappearance. In theory, in those three years, Jim could have done anything he wanted under his own name and likely wouldn't have raised any alarm bells. And of course, we need to consider what was one of the key things missing from Jim's wallet when it was found in the acid vat. His driver's license. Is it possible that this was kept so that Jim would have one piece of official identification that could then be used to acquire further documentation? You'd be surprised what you can do with only your driver's license. There's been a small piece of information Detective Dave Glossop had told me in my initial interview about, in his words, Tracy's belief that someone had entered their house in the days following Jim's disappearance and the possibility that the security alarm may have been turned off. Recently, I spoke to Tracy and brought this up. The security alarm thing. Tell me about that. At the house, you said that one day you came home and the security alarm wasn't on. No. um, One day I came home and the ranch slider had been forced open. Wow, okay. So, because I was staying at my parents, and um, we went round um, and we found that, yeah, the the ranch slider in the family room had been forced open, um, but uh, nothing had been taken or anything like that, or um, the alarm was still on. Uh, okay, so the alarm was... Right, so, okay. Would the... Would opening a door like that set an alarm off? Only if you came in. But what we thought had happened was that because at that stage we had reporters coming around, um, that because there'd been um, – how did we know that? I think they'd rung oh, – I, I can't remember now, but uh, we think they got disturbed by someone knocking on the front door. Oh, so, so you, so this was in the days just after his disappearance. Yes, yes, it was in that week. Okay, so you come home to your. This was your parents' house, or your, or no, no, your um, to our house because I wasn't staying there, and um, the ranch slider had been forced open to use tools from the um, shed out the back. Yeah, and forced open the. Um, yeah, the ranch slider. Oh, okay. They, uh, I, and then, the, but the alarm wasn't off. But yeah, but, yeah. But they hadn't access because the, the alarm hadn't gone off. Oh, okay. I mean, any thought that it could have been Jim wouldn't make sense because, in theory, he has the house keys anyway, right? So that's right. Why would he need to do that? Yeah, it's a hell of a coincidence, though. But if you weren't staying in yes. the house at the time, you've also got an empty house, and that's. A lot of yes. burglars will look for that. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it's still. It's yeah, still we we had been we had been burgled before in that house, so. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny though that that it's a yes. coincidence that the door gets pulled open and just at that time a reporter happens 
Well, I don't know. We we just surmised that yeah, that's yeah. what happened, um, because yeah, we just thought that well, um, they the the person obviously hadn't accessed the actual house because nothing it was it wasn't open wide enough. Oh, okay. So it had sort of thing because I think um, from memory, well, we had we had a, one of those sticks in the ranch lighter. Yeah, I know what you mean. So. Yeah. They kind of you know, broken the glass, got the ranch lighter to open, but there's a stick in the way. Yeah, so it only opens like half a foot or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, so the glass was actually broken. Yes. Oh, yeah. That must have been quite shocking, though, when you came home and found yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. It's funny it's not mentioned really in any anything. Dave just mentioned it off the top of his head at the time. Okay. Yeah, they came round and they had a look round and they sort of dusted for, uh, you know, prints and stuff. but couldn't really find anything, so. Yeah, and I guess you would have checked through the house to make sure there was nothing missing. Yes. Yeah. 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 Hmm. Oh, it's, it's, yeah. I mean, of course, it's yeah. It's still interesting. Um, well, yeah, coincidental. You know, whether it's a coincidence or, mm. you know, or somebody was looking for something. I don't know. Yeah. No, it's strange. But but we had, you know, but whoever would have had house keys. Yeah, I mean, yeah. That's it. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, unless they were. Because it took me a while to actually even change the locks because I thought, well, if Jim's out there and he wants to come home, I don't want to change the locks. Yeah. Yeah. But then my dad said to me, well, maybe he hasn't got the keys. And I went, oh, I never thought about that. Yeah. So, so basically, yeah, at that stage, I got all the security stays and and um, security lights and yeah. locks. Like you are right now, I was a bit shocked when Tracy first started telling me this story. And of course, the first thing that came to mind was, has Jim tried to return home for some reason, perhaps to collect something? Or has someone involved in Jim's disappearance attempted to enter the house? But as Tracy mentioned, there's one simple thing that would in theory refute this. And that's that Jim's house keys were never found. So if this was connected to his disappearance, then surely they would just use the keys. Of course, it's probable that this incident is not connected to Jim's disappearance at all but it's a hell of a coincidence that only a few days after Jim disappears from the mill, someone attempts to enter Jim's home. I can only imagine Tracy's shock when she discovered this at the time. And I'm sure in that moment, she must have thought that it was somehow related. I feel comfortable that in this episode, we've managed to show that Jim in this final week wasn't suffering any kind of neurological illness or psychosis. That whatever the reasons behind Jim's actions over that final weekend, they were intentional. Made by a man that, although under a great deal of stress, knew what he was doing. I think Ian is accurate when he says that it seems Jim had come to some kind of decision that Friday. A decision that would change his and his family's lives forever. A decision that would create one of New Zealand's most enduring mysteries. And in the next and final episode of Season 2 of Guilt, 
I hope I can finally shine a light on this mystery and answer the question, what happened to Jim Donnelly? Guilt is written, produced, and edited by me, Ryan Wolfe. The title track is Nuclear Conception by Alison Winter. The opinions of guests of this podcast are just that, and are not necessarily the views of the podcast itself. You'll find further photos and videos related to this podcast on my Instagram, RyanWolfNZ, or our Facebook page, Brevity Studios NZ. You can discuss the case with other listeners on our Facebook group, the Guilt Podcast Discussion Group. If you want to support this podcast and help make more great content, plus get ad-free listening and bonus content, you can subscribe for the price of a coffee on Apple Plus under our Brevity Studios channel. Or for non-Apple listeners, you can now subscribe on Acast Plus. You'll find the link in the description of this episode. You can also find further information on our website, theguiltpodcast.com. If you have any information related to the disappearance of Jim Donnelly, you can contact us anonymously at brevitystudiosnz at gmail.com. On the next episode of Guilt. Um, yeah. The car crash. <laughs> yes. Um, like, I'm getting absolutely roasted over this car crash. I know. I've seen that. Um, I, I sort of feel like there's more here or something that you're not telling me or... No, there's not. See, the thing was, right, okay, it happened while I was away, right? Yeah. Ultimately, the best scenario in my head without... with all the facts that have been put in front of me is to have closure of a body... Uh, somebody to accuse and to be able to be shut that chapter of my life soundly and be able to know who practically took 19 to 20 years of my life of what I could have had sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusion Supply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.